Welcome to the Sideline Podcast. Today is September 28th, and we've got a full slate of sports. My name is Justin Berger, and I am joined by Doug Watley and Alec Kieser. We have a packed show today, so let's get to it. We're going to start in Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta, Georgia. Doug, why don't you start us off so I can gather myself emotionally? <laughs> yeah, very nice of you to let me have this one, um, both in the game and to start the show. But in the game, the, the Bears-Falcons, Justin, we watched this game together. We were playing on this for a while. Um, the first half was really dominated by the Falcons. Mitch was in. Mitch was not necessarily horrible, but he was not a winning quarterback. And, I mean, we've seen this Mitch before, but pretty much the team was down 26-10 to 10 in the third quarter, and Mitch came in for the first drive through an interception, and that was it. Matt Nagy made the move, bring in the guy that they paid so much money to this offseason, let him have his chance, Nick Foles comes in. Now Nick Foles comes in, and you could sense the energy change from this Bears team. They were ready for him. The Falcons, you sense the opposite of that. And kind of going back to past Falcons games, it's not very surprising to see it happen where they just could not finish in the second half of the football game. The Bears took advantage of that. So from my perspective, I'm happy that the Bears were able to do this, obviously. But it's it's kind of expected. The Bears have played very well in the second half in week one and now in week three the Falcons have just not really produced in the second half in all three weeks. So it's, it was surprising because you see the win probability for the Falcons was very high in the second half. But when you look back at past weeks, Justin, I mean, are you surprised? Doug, you know, I actually had this conversation today um, in my sports casting class with uh, it's taught by an assistant athletic director at IU, Jeremy Gray. And we had this conversation about the Jets and the Giants, or excuse me, the Jets and the Falcons. The Jets, Keys, you know this, they're, they are probably the worst team in football, but both the Jets and the Falcons are 0-3. And he said, what's more miserable, knowing that you're going to lose as a Jets fan or being surprised that you're going to lose as a Falcons fan? And I came back at him with, I, I was never comfortable. And I said this to you. I think you said something to me in the third quarter of this game. You're like, how nervous are you? I was like, I'm not comfortable until there's triple zeros on the clock. Uh, of, this was expected. Um, obviously, you never expect a blow lead, but the box score, if you look at it, is if you look at the trend of this team, is as expected. Uh, 26 to 10 heading into the fourth quarter. The Bears score 20 unanswered points. Falcons lose by four. Uh, I it's 3.02 Eastern right now as we were recording, and Dan Quinn and his staff remain uh, in Atlanta poised to coach next week, which is surprising to me, not saying one way or another that he should or shouldn't be coaching, but that is kind of a shocker to me after the last two weeks. Uh, I'll, talk, I'll start with the, the Bears first. I thought Foles looked tremendous. I worry about what this does to Mitch confidence-wise, I think everyone was kind of on the same page starting the season. You can't bench Mitch to start the season because that would completely blow his confidence. But if he has a bad start to the season, you can absolutely bring in Nick Foles. Um, and we saw that Mitch really wasn't getting it done. The Falcons have schematically 
one of the worst defenses in football, and they looked like the Legion of Boom in the first half against Mitch and the Bears, which I was happy about. Obviously, losing Tariq Cohen, and he probably tore his ACL, which sucks for the Bears. Officially. That officially, um, which, which helped from a defensive standpoint for the Falcons, obviously, because he's such a dynamic threat. Um, but as a, as a Bears fan, I think you got to be happy. Obviously, you have two games that uh, maybe you had no, no uh, sense of winning before the fourth quarter. But 3-0 and is 3-0, and and you move on and you figure it out. that The, the uh, NFC Central is terrible. So, or I keep saying Central, no, it's the no. NFC North. The, the Vikings are terrible. so bad. The, the Packers may be the best team in football, but yeah. the Vikings are terrible, and the Lions are really bad. I don't know how they won that game yesterday. But, anyways, I, the Bears are in a good spot, I think, especially since there are seven teams that make the playoffs uh, on each side this year. The Jeff Schwartz, a former lineman in, in the league, tweeted yesterday that he was watching the end of the Falcons-Bears game. The Bears scored to make it 26-23, uh, the next play, the Falcons had the ball. The clock started at four minutes and 21 seconds left. Still had the lead in the game. The Falcons punted 11 seconds later. They yep. managed to take 11 seconds off the play clock with a lead in the fourth quarter. Now, I'm the biggest Matt Ryan lover in the land. He was terrible in the second half yesterday. Um, I really don't have a lot of bright spots. The inability to kind of – just spend clock has been, I mean, you think about the blown leads, you think about yesterday, you think about the Cowboys game, you think about the Super Bowl. It's very telling that it's all been the same way. The Falcons have been unable to spend clock. And I, I don't know. I mean, that just goes to who's calling the offensive plays, which is Dirk Cutter. Now it was Shanahan, but, and obviously it falls on Dan Quinn too, because that's his coaching staff. But to say I'm shocked, would be incorrect because it's become this kind of mental thing that the Falcons have fallen into. So um, am I upset? Uh, absolutely. But shocked? No. Yeah, I don't want to beat a dead horse here, but if Dan Quinn's not gone, this is not going to change anything for the Falcons. Sometimes a coach's voice gets stale and you got to make a change. They avoided it last year, and I think now through week three, you got to do that. And one more thought for the Bears. They, I'm, I'm very proud of the way they battled back, and a lot of it is because of Nick Foles. Some things did not go to the Bears' way. They had two touchdowns that were overturned, and that is very rare in a game. And they were both in the second half. One was an, uh, an Allen Robinson catch in the third quarter. It was caught by him, but then the defender, I don't know which quarterback it was, pretty much ripped it out of his hands. It was called an interception. Probably the right call, but just unfortunate for the Bears. Uh, fourth quarter, Anthony Miller caught one in the fourth quarter for a touchdown, and it was incomplete. It, w- it was the right call. It was incomplete, but just things didn't go the Bears' way in certain moments, but they kept on battling, and they put three straight drives together in the fourth quarter to end the game, which all ended up with touchdowns. So, like you said, Justin, 3-0 no is 3-0. No. It's still some skepticism with this team, obviously. I mean, you – you had a decent game on defense, but Matt Ryan still put up 26 points. So still some question marks, but he's 3-0. Can't be mad about that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to, like, pin, um, like, not being able to close on teams because usually there's a lot of different factors into why, like, a game got away or certain things. But 
like you guys have said, this has almost become like habit for this Falcons team to go up big double digits. And then just like, like you said, 11 seconds for under four, under five minutes left in the fourth quarter. And you run 11 seconds off the clock and you punt the ball back. That's just not going to get it done. Um, Doug, you said that the bears had two touchdowns overturned and you said they were the right calls, but I mean, those, those two touchdowns don't get overturned and the Falcons lose by 15, 16, whatever the, the math on that is. Um, it's, it's definitely scary as somebody who, has Allen Robinson in fantasy and was playing against Calvin Ridley. The first half of that game was terribly frustrating. Rooting for Mitch sucks. <laughs> and rooting against, rooting against Matt Ryan, especially the way he was playing in the first half, was brutal. But then as, like, as soon as the third quarter started, it was like they, they, it, it was some voodoo magic. They forgot how to play football. Um, it, I, if you're an Atlanta Falcons fan, I, I, I would probably sue whoever put, keeps putting up the win probability graphic. Um, because it's just a load of crap. I'd be tired of seeing it. I'm sorry, Justin. God damn. Um, the, the best 0-2 the best team played the, the worst 2-0 team. And winning stays winning. I uh, I appreciate your sympathies. Um, I, I do encouragingly for this team, Todd Gurley looks pretty good. I'm not going to say he looks as great as he did when he was a Ram, but I, I'm happy with that signing uh, three games in. Calvin Ridley, I said this last week, he – is quietly one of the best receivers in football. Um, he, he really showed that today because Julio didn't play. I, Julio Jones, by the way, who I love like a family member, is made of glass, and he is questionable every week. It's a miracle. He, does, he, hasn't, he hasn't been more seriously hurt, but it's, it's something every week with him. So seeing him out this week was not surprising, but seeing Ridley being able to, to kind of take that lead receiver role was, was nice. Um, like we've said forever, the the offense offensive firepower is not really a problem until you need to burn clock. If this team can score at will. I would be lying to you if I said I wasn't confident when the Falcons got the ball back uh, with Matt Ryan running a two-minute drill. Matt Ryan has made his money off of coming back or taking uh, or going for a tie or something with less than two minutes left in a game or in a half. It's what he's made his career on. And, and to see – I think he threw a pick um, yeah, yeah. on that last that drive. At his first pick of the season, if I'm not – or if I'm correct, um, it's just – it's very disheartening. Um, again, I'll point to this before we move on because I know we've been talking about this for 10 minutes. But the players pointed again to themselves. And, of course, Dan Quinn blamed himself and blamed his coaching staff because you have to if you're the coach. You can't blame the players. But – I said this, Keys, I think this was to you last night. I said this to you. You don't see Lions players sticking up for Matt Patricia after a loss. You don't see Jets players sticking up for Adam Gase after a loss. I just, I cannot discount this as completely Dan Quinn's fault. I get that he gets to be the scapegoat because that's how major league sports work, but it's, I don't think it's correct. This feels mental. I, there were no coaching decisions besides, I, I mean, the the offensive play calling on that on that eleven second drive was wrong. But Dan Quinn doesn't touch the offensive playbook, so I just I cannot blame Dan Quinn. People are so like fire him, fire him, fire him, and I get it. You're angry, but it's mental, and at some point, your players have got to play to their potential. So uh, it's very upsetting. Next week they play on Monday night in Lambeau. And I, I mean, we could get slaughtered, but keys, we were saying like 
they could win this game. The Falcons have played very well against the Packers in the Rodgers-Ryan era. So uh, I, I really don't know. There's not a lot of optimism in Atlanta right now. And if the Braves lose to the Reds, like I said, it's gonna, I'm going to be in a really bad place mentally. So with that, let's move on to the Packers-Saints. Noodle arm of the week goes to Drew Brees this week. Uh, boy, is he incapable of throwing the football downfield. The dude was a checkdown machine, Keys. I mean, we joked about it before the game, like because we laughed about it last week, and was like, "Oh, Breeze's noodle arm can he even make throws down the field." And as the game went on, it was less of a running joke and more of like, an, "Oh, he actually can't throw the ball downfield." Like, I think there was one throw in the fourth quarter yesterday where um, he hit somebody over the middle um, for like 17 yards, and was like, "Oh my god!" Like, Drew Breeze actually got the ball down the middle of the field. It was crazy. Um, like we we called him the noodle arm of the week. He there was a couple of times where he just loaded up to make throws and, and then you would just like, up, oh, check down, check down, check down. And I think Kamara had 15 catches. Um, yeah, there's, they're going to have issues if he can't push the ball down the field. At the same time though, if anyone's going to have this situation happen to them, Drew Brees has the options with Kamara to have this happen. And Kamara ended up 139 receiving yards to go with 58 rushing, two touchdowns, one which was incredible. If you remember that reception where he broke like four tackles. If anyone's going to have this happen, Drew Brees is still the leader. He has the pieces around him. And also remember, Michael Thomas is out for the second straight week. So he doesn't really have that option. Emmanuel Sanders, as much as Sean Payton wants that connection to work, I just don't think it will be that consistent throughout the rest of the season. He needs Michael Thomas. But Alvin Kamara right now, best running back in the league. Okay, Chris Collinsworth. Uh, yes. Um, you might be. Do you see him? Uh, well, I, I agree with you. Uh, if you look at a pure skills point of view, if you, if you take in rushing, passing, yak, all of that, Kamara is undoubtedly one of the best. To say he is the best is contentious, of course, because then you got guys like, Saquon, if he's healthy, McCaffrey, if he's healthy, Zeke. Um, I'm sure I'm missing somebody, it's but a short list. Uh, you know, Alvin. even if you look at like Echolar's got a similar uh, uh, capability, like statistics wise, that Kamara does because they're in kind of a similar offensive system. He's going to have those uh, care or, uh, receptions that Kamara does. But this Saints offense, my point is, they're not what they used to be. Uh, Drew Brees, when the Saints were really good in that in the Super Bowl year and the years following, they had the ability to get the ball downfield. And we saw last night, Drew. I saw a throw Drew Brees made. It was twenty yards. He underthrew it. The receiver had to come back, and it was lucky that he caught it. But he, we, Keys, you just talked about it. There were times where he would he would get ready to throw it downhill, and he would physically like it looked like he was almost pump faking the throw. And then he'd bring it back in and check down to Kamara or, you know, someone across the middle of the field. But the Saints can't win a Super Bowl if Drew Brees is throwing the ball seven yards each time he gets rid of it. The defense is phenomenal. Last night, 37 points to the Packers, who have, besides the Seahawks, probably the best offense in football right now. I mean, you could say the Chiefs or the Ravens, but I feel like that's kind of a cop-out. Um, the Packers are rolling. So to give up 37 and give yourself a chance, it's pretty good. Uh, Cam Jordan's unbelievable. So uh, at one and two, the Saints are probably not where they want to be, but they're not in the worst spot. Michael Thomas, again, I've said it forever. I think he's overrated. He's not one of the best receivers in football. 
He catches the ball seven yards across the field. That's not a talent. That's not a talent. Uh, it is when you have Drew Brees as your quarterback. A I mean, all right. As, and for as much as, like, the Drew Brees slanders we're giving, the Saints still put up yeah. 30 points last night. Um, yeah, no, I agree. So, agree. I don't – like, can this team win w- without Brees pushing the ball down the field? Obviously, I think they won 13 games last year, and his average depth of target was under six yards. Um, but they're they're going to have a hard time beating these top-tier teams if they're going to allow these defenses to, to just creep up on them. Um Obviously, people are going to have a hard time tackling Kamara. And I think that was kind of like what Collinsworth was alluding to last night when he called him the best back in the league. Uh, if you look at all the things that he does for their offense, um, I think he only rushed the ball like between 12 and 15 times. I think he doesn't carry the ball a ton, um, but he touches the ball all the time. And so if, you, if you're just looking at playmakers, he's on that short list of best in the league, absolutely. Let me, let me talk about the Packers real quick because we're, we're really trashing the Saints in a sense here. The Packers are a very, very good football team. I talked about it last week. Aaron Rodgers is playing some of his best football that we've seen in many, many years. And now Devontae Adams is out. You talk about Michael Thomas being out. Aaron Rodgers, number one guy, not playing. So then they have guys step up. Um, Rodgers shared the ball a lot. Lazard was his number one option, who actually had a really, really good game. But I don't know. I, I, I'm As a Bears fan, I am scared of this Packers team. We can say that Saints did not play very good, but at the same time, it's not like they gave this game to the Packers. Like it was a close game, it was a great game for Sunday Night Football. It was a fun game to watch. It, it was two teams that will be in the playoffs and probably compete to be in the Super Bowl. And I don't know. I I like the Packers. I I do like the Saints. I think they won't win without Drew Brees throwing the ball further down the field, but. Since he can't do that right now, they're finding ways to stay in the game, and and that's what they need to do right now. Yeah, I think the the important thing to note from this is just the Packers are really, really good. Um, Aaron Rodgers, like you said, he was making some throws last night where we were just looking at each other on the couch and laughing because there's three guys in the league maybe who can make some of the throws he was making last night. If he's going to play like that, they're going to be tough to beat. I, I want to – before we move on from Kamara, or I guess we did, but I want to go back to it. Uh, I, I think the thing for me that he's just very like he's very slippery. It's not that he's the fastest or you know he's the, he's the most athletic, but he's just like slick and he makes the right cut. And your point about the Packers, yes, the, that throw he made to Lazard where he was evading the rush and then threw the ball off his back foot, leaning to his left, fifty yards downfield into a bucket. That was the only place that Lazard could get it, and then Lazard like. Couldn't get into the end zone. That was he ridiculous. He couldn't keep but, his feet last night. It was actually nuts. I don't like whether he's dealing with a hamstring or something. I have no idea. But that was not the only time he slipped. Yeah, but the throw. I mean, the throw was the throw, and Rogers Perfect. did yeah, that exactly. three or four times last night, and he looked. He looked. The hard count was great. Um, he looked great. His his offensive line is back to what it used to be. Um, not that it was bad last year when they were thirteen and three, but I was very impressed with this Packers team. Um, and it's not dissing the Saints. It's just people are so high on this team, and I just I don't see it. And I said I've watched a lot of Saints football over the years. This is not a team that is even remotely as good as they used to be. Offensively, or I mean defensively, they're pretty good, but they've they've been better. Cowboys Seahawks phenomenal game. Uh, argue you could argue is the best game of the week up there with the Packers Saints tonight. Not that tonight won't be spectacular, but. Uh, Seahawks come away with it. They're three and zero. Cowboys are one and two, but I mean they've lost to to the Rams and the Seahawks now. So it's not like 
they've lost to terrible teams. I was very impressed again with Russell Wilson, but like, I mean, I'm going to say that 16 times this year. So I'm curious to get y'all's thoughts on this game. I mean, I, like, like I said last week, I thought Seattle was the best team in football. They play another top tier team in, in Dallas, regardless of what you want to say about Dallas. I know they're one and two, but I mean, if DK Metcalf doesn't drop that touchdown, they, they win by two touchdowns. Wilson threw five touchdowns. They run the ball. The defense will make enough plays. Um, this Seattle team, I, I will keep saying it week after week, they're scary. Um, they will not go quietly to many teams, and there are not many defenses, if any, that will be able to contain this offense. Keys, you are big on the Seahawks. Does Chris Carson's potential length, lengthy injury scare you at all? Um, yes and no. I th- Carson's a, a very good player. I think that they lean on him a little bit more in the passing game than they do the running game. Um, and so in that regard, if they can kind of get um, maybe like a third receiver, fourth receiver involved or kind of um, have one of those backs step up and be more of a pass catching back, it'll definitely hurt. Um, but I don't know if their reliance on the run game is as heavy as it's been in the last few years. I think you're, you're really looking at Russell Wilson going to drop back and throw the ball 35, 40 times a game and, and make things happen. So I don't think the Carson injury will affect them as much as some people may anticipate. And even though it'll hurt some fantasy lineups, I don't know if it'll do that much for Seattle. See, I'm, I'm on the opposite side. I think that is really, really unfortunate for them. I think that's going to really hurt their oh, offense. Absolutely unfortunate I think, sure. well, yeah, I know, but I think Wilson's success is even going to be impacted by that because now defenses are going to step back a little bit, say, all right, we're going to leave minimal guys in the box. If you guys want to run with us with Carlos Hyde, be our guest. We'll accept those four five yard runs max, but then, sit back, double Metcalf, double Lockett, whatever. And then Russell Wilson, yes, you can say that he w, might still make w, those throws. W, I'm going to cut you off. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. So Doug, four, I mean, four or five yards of carry. Are you kidding me? Sign me w, up for that. Yeah, Jesus absolutely Christ. sign me up for that. I said Max. I will, I, will, I will say that Carlos Hyde was a sneaky thousand-yard rusher last year. Um, and I believe they like Homer. But if you're going to run the ball for five yards a clip, I don't think anybody would ever throw it. I know. I probably should use a lower number, but you know what my point was. <laughs> I know what you mean. I know what you mean. But I, th- I, I that also becomes like, – you're going to leave Russell – you're not going to rush Russell Wilson. You're going to let him sit back there and have time. Or, or maybe you're, if you drop in the zone, you give him the opportunity to take off and run. Um, it's tough to double those receivers. You're going to leave somebody open. Uh, it, it's going to take a defense with a lot – like it's going to take a defense like the Patriots to be able to match up uh, athletically yeah. across the board. And you even saw what this, this Seahawks team did to them. Lock and Metcalf are quietly one of the best wide receiver duos in the in the world, um, and having so Greg Olson now as as veteran leadership that helps them a lot as well. And he's a, still a pretty decent tight end. So mm-hmm. yes, Keys, I I will jump on this bandwagon with you. I'm never going to bet against Pete Carroll, so or Russell Wilson for that matter. So I, I've been impressed with this team. As for the Cowboys. Uh, they didn't look bad. Obviously, it's kind of like the—I guess it's kind of like the Saints, where you play like a pretty good game, but you come away empty-handed. The last drive really—it kind of felt a little clustery. Um, maybe they weren't—they they didn't get the plays that they wanted to do, but they were in the game in Seattle, mm-hmm. which I mean, people say it's the hardest place to play in football this year. That doesn't matter, but it's still a road game, so. Cowboys are one and two, maybe kind of a, a fake one and two team, you know, whereas the Lions are one and two and they actually suck. NFC East is uh, not good, and that's putting it as nicely as possible. They're, they're in the easiest uh, division 
by a long shot. They'll, they haven't even played any of their the other teams, I don't think, yet. No, they haven't. Um, yeah, so they'll have op- at least six opportunities to get hopefully six wins for them. But like you said, Zeke, also I want to add, Zeke did not have a good game. He was really stopped on the on uh, the rushing attack. So Dak, the way that he kept this team in the game, you can we have debates all over national media about is Dak good? Is he great? What what is he? I thought yesterday, I I, I don't want to say he was great, but he kept them in this game when nobody else was. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to say the same exact thing you just said. The NFC East is terrible, um, and you just made the point that they haven't played anybody yet. So there's going to be opportunities for Dallas to get wins, and like you said, Dak. I mean, he threw the two interceptions, and I think one was on the final drive um, last night or yesterday. But, I mean, he threw for 470 yards and three touchdowns. He spread the ball around. That receiving core is quietly one of the best in football as well with Cooper, Gallup, and um, C.D. Lamb. Um, but, yeah, uh, tough game for the Cow. I, I mean, it's, it's hard when you run into the best team in football. Um, they lost by seven points, and they had a chance to win it at the end. But, yeah, they're, I still think they're the favorite out of the East. All right, let's move on to the other side of the East, uh, the Buffalo Bills in the AFC East. Like that, a little transition magic there. Been taking some classes. All right, the Bills are 3-0. and Doug, I know you have said that maybe it's kind of a fraudulent 3-0. and They've Their first two wins were against the Jets and the Dolphins, although Fitzmagic the other night. Holy moly, a lot of people lost money on the Jaguars. Um, but So those were their first two wins, and then – Stop me if you've heard this before, but the Bills almost blew a 28-3 lead in that game. Uh, they did hold on to win after the Rams' offense kind of came back to life. Sean McVay figured it out and put on a different scheme in the second half. But I'm still impressed by this Bills team. I think they have one of the best defenses in football. Josh Allen has proven himself, aside from a mistake or two every game, which is just built in, it feels like. But this Bills team is sneaky good. They still have to get past the Patriots in the, in, in the AFC East. Um, and we've seen them, you know, just continue the pirate ship. But I've been impressed with this Bills team. I've continued to be impressed with this Bills team and the progression I've seen since the Sean McDermott era has started. Yeah, this was the first real matchup. The Rams looked very, very good the first two weeks, so this was a, a star-studded matchup. I, I was very impressed with the Bills the first half. I, I lost some confidence when they were blowing that lead, but at the same time, I thought it was more – of the Rams, like you said, with McVay being a very, very talented offense and putting some drives together. And so for Josh Allen, this is a big test for him to come back and lead his team to get 35 points and, and eventually win the game. The Patriots are still there, but the Bills have to be the favorite. They have to like their position right now. They play the Raiders next week. I, I got no complaints with Buffalo fans right now. Yeah, they're a really, really good team. Like We laugh about it every week with Josh Allen, whether it's a stupid interception or the guy like pitches the ball back. He's always good for one dumb mistake, but at the same time, he's quietly becoming one of the most productive quarterbacks in football. And this defense, while they were shredded by the Rams yesterday, especially in the second half, is still very, very good. They have top-tier corner on the outside in Tredavious White. They have great interior defense. They have a good scheme. Um, they have a great coach. And I think people have – have been discounting the effect that Stephon Diggs has had on the offense. He's a legitimate number one wide receiver. He's really opened things up for them. Um, he's played really well, and he's allowed Josh Allen and, and a lot of those other guys to do a lot of other things just because of the attention that he brings. And so uh, this Bills team is, is very, very dangerous, and they're easily the biggest threat to the Patriots in the East. 
To speak quickly about Josh Allen, he's got 12 touchdowns, 10 in the air, two through two on the ground through three games, which is, I mean, those are very impressive numbers. I think he did, he broke one of um, uh, Kelly's, one of yeah. Jim Kelly's records from the 90s um, with through three games. So, I mean, that's anytime you're with him, Jim Kelly is uh, in the Hall of Fame, people forget. So uh, that's impressive. I look forward to seeing what this team does in the rest of the season. Quickly, just a note from the Eagles-Bengals game. They tied. So there's our first tie of the season. Um, I just yeah. something quick about that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not to just bring your pain back into this, but um, after the Eagles game had ended, I'd gone onto my Snapchat and I'd scrolled to the right to look at some stories. And back-to-back was uh, our very own Justin Berger's story and our other friend, Brett Marburger, who is a big Eagles fan. And I clicked on Justin's story, and it was a picture of an Atlanta Falcons um, pennant, and it said pain. And then I swiped to the next story, and it was a picture of Carson Wentz, and it just said pain. It was poetic. Oh, great minds think alike. Um, (laughs) But Doug Peterson, who we've known for years to be this kind of go-for-it on fourth down, go-for-two kind of guy – had the chance to win the football game in overtime with a 59-yard field goal from Jake Elliott, who's been one of the longest kickers uh, in football in the last three or four years since whenever he came. Delay a game penalty, push it back to 64 yards, and at that point with 19 seconds left or something left in the game, he decides to punt it instead of go for the 64-yarder. Just two or three years ago, Elliott hit a walk-off 62-yard field goal, and it was good from like 70, it looked like. He had plenty of leg on it. So for a guy that's so you know, go get it and take no days off to just accept a tie. Being 0-2 and and just accepting a tie is, I mean, that's unacceptable. 100% agree. And plus, even if you miss the field goal, you're in a similar situation whether you punt it or not. Obviously, you're a lot farther down the field, and Joe Burrow might have, what, 10 seconds to make something happen, maybe get a lucky toss in the end zone. I'll take those chances, though. I think the, the upside of making that field goal and, and pretty much telling your team, you know what, I don't want to go into week four with zero wins. Let's try this. And instead they just punt it and just settle for a tie with the worst team is crazy to me. Yeah, it was, it was um, shocking when it happened. Just cause, like, wh- why? Why? Why would you not take the chance? Why would you not try and win the game? Like, you, you know – if you kick the field goal, you're either going to make it or you're going to miss the field goal and you're either going to win or you might give the other team a chance to win. You punt and you know for a fact, unless something crazy happens, you're not getting the ball back. I just, I don't know. It's a loser's mentality. That's, I mean, that's where my head's at. Like you accepted, you accepted your fate. Where do you stand with Carson Wentz right now? Both of you out of, out of curiosity, because for me personally, I'll give it a quick summary. He made a very, very impressive rush to I think yeah he scored a touchdown so he still has that capability that we've seen in, in his quote MVP year um, but one touchdown two interceptions to tie against the Bengals in a must-win game leaves a lot of doubts right after you draft a rookie QB too yeah I just don't like for once and and it kind of like you can only make this excuse so many times like with the receivers he's throwing too but like look at Aaron Rodgers it's like you can't, you can't. I mean, you can't compare Carson Wentz and Aaron Rodgers. That's just stupid. But like at a certain point, the quarterback makes his receivers better. Um, and so, like, I obviously us and the Eagles fans need to see more from Carson Wentz. Um, he that's his game the other day was not enough for them to win. 
I feel exactly the same way. Jalen Hurts intrigues me, intrigues the hell out of me. So I do want to see him play, but Carson Wentz looks shaky every time he steps up under center in the shotgun. And that's, you just can't have that at the professional level. So the Eagles, the Eagles aren't a bad enough team for them to be 0-2-1. It's just, it's unacceptable. So, I mean, you could say that about the Falcons too. So, Doug, who wins tonight and why? Ravens. I've got Ravens by a touchdown. They cover. I, I like both these teams, obviously. Like, you can't really go wrong with either pick. Um, but I do think Lamar wants a revenge game after um, just falling apart in the playoffs. Not to the Chiefs, but then seeing Patrick Mahomes go on to win the Super Bowl. Lamar wants to prove himself. Ravens. Keys, who wins tonight and why? Yeah, I'm going to say Ravens minus two and a half. Um, that's just because uh, the Chiefs looked a little shaky last week against Justin Herbert's Chargers. Um, I just Baltimore's proven to be a little bit of a more, I guess, a better regular season team, if we want to say that, although I'm pretty sure they've had the same record last year. Um, it's a pretty much toss-up. I like Baltimore by a field goal because they're playing at home. Uh, I was going to pick Baltimore, but I, I don't feel bad. I'll be trendy. I'll pick the Chiefs. I think Patrick Mahomes is frankly pissed off about how they played last week, so I'll take the Chiefs by a touchdown. Let's move on to the NBA. Uh, great, great series, Keys. I know it wasn't the way you wanted it to end. Um, the Heat end up winning the series in six, four to two against the Celtics. Um, nonetheless, like I said, as a, as a guy who has gotten back into basketball, I could not have asked for a better six games. Um, just from an X's and O's standpoint, I thought both teams played fantastic. Perhaps the Celtics faded a little more than people would like in the fourth quarter, but uh, we'll, we'll start with our, our friend that bleeds green. Yeah. I mean, as a, it sucks when your season ends, obviously Um, it wasn't, wasn't fun watching them lose last night, especially when I think the heat went on like a 20 to three run or like a 20 to six run um, between the third and the fourth quarter. Um, Hayward looked lost on the court. Looked like he didn't want the ball. Kemba kind of disappeared at the end. Those, I mean, and they're, they're not our like The Celtics have some problems. I was talking to my dad about it last night, and, and our issues are really bench um, point guard who can score a little bit and then, you know, some backup scoring. Um, but, I mean, the, the Heat just outplayed us. They, they were first to every loose ball. Um, they hit big shots. Tyler Hero, how, I mean, you can't say enough good things about him. Um, as a closeted Kentucky fan, I'll admit that now. I love Tyler Hero. Um, I knew he was going to be good, and he was drafted, I think, two or three picks before the Celtics. So, of course, he's going to come back and absolutely kill us. Um, but him and Duncan Robinson's ability to just knock down shots and not be phased by the moment. And like I said this last night, kind of out of salt, um, like how different would this playoff series look if they had to have played in TD Garden and not in the bubble? But, um, yeah, I mean, the Heat were the better team, um, and they deserved to win, and they did. So good for them. Congratulations to Jimmy Butler. And I don't even want to watch the finals because I hate both these teams so much. The Heat are a very fun team. We've been saying this for a while. What impressed me is the Celtics didn't necessarily play bad, right? Except for maybe the fourth quarters of some games, especially last night, they kind of fell apart and missed some shots. But they were relatively playing to their potential. The Heat, like you said, just outplayed them. And it was different guys in game four. Tyler Hero, 37 points. Game five, Duncan Robinson comes in, scores 20. And then game six, this was the last person that I really thought would have this impact. Iguodala does not miss from three. He goes four for four, and he's their impact performer. And then you have the constants of Adebayo and Jimmy Butler as their leaders. So, you know, we'll talk about the Lakers series with them in a little bit, but the Heat, the way that they're playing right now and that the, the many options that they have really can win in a lot of ways. And as a basketball fan, just love the, the purest of this team. 
is a very fun team to watch, and I'm excited for this next series. Yeah, not even mentioned Bam, but um, I mean, he was phenomenal. And there was the meme, I think, of LeBron's face or, or Bam's face cropped on LeBron's body. And it was like, uh, when Miami needs somebody to play against Boston in game six or something like that. And it just brought me back nightmares. I didn't like it. But I, um, I will say I really do like the pieces on this Heat team. Tyler Hero is ridiculous. Um, him him and Bam were probably I – mean, I guess you put Jimmy up there too, but they were the constants of this series. Bam Adebayo was unbelievable, and I think I think maybe you could argue Tyler Hero, but I would go with Bam as the Eastern Conference Finals MVP. Um, he was just so stoic throughout this entire series. Uh, Jimmy, I am happy for – and, Doug, this has got to hurt as a Bulls fan, but he was just – thrown away in that Philadelphia locker room and just called out for no reason when we've, we learned that that, that locker room was toxic by itself already. So I, uh, I'm happy for him. This is going to be a fun series. It's a revenge series for LeBron back to the heat and sort of for Pat Riley too, as a former Lakers head coach. So Pat Riley, by the way, Best dressed person in the bubble. The other day, he lo- he was wearing. I wasn't the other day. It was a couple weeks ago. He was wearing this like white linen like robe type thing with the beard and the mask on. He looked like um like what God looks like in a movie or something. It was unbelievable. But I am very excited about this uh, about this uh, about the NBA Finals. Um, I do, however, believe that it's going to just be another gentleman's sweep for LeBron. As my prediction is Lakers in five. I am hoping it goes seven. I don't think it does. I'm going to say Lakers in six. You mentioned the Bulls and Jimmy Butler way back when. Their main three pieces were an older Dwayne Wade, an older Rajon Rondo, and look at him now. And then a Jimmy Butler who wanted to be a star, look at him now. So it, is, it does hurt a little bit, but I'm happy for all these guys. Lakers in six, so LeBron and Anthony Davis are playing insanely well, um, and they have more options. The Heat, I think, will give them trouble, but I don't know. I, I, I can't bet against LeBron right now. I started watching some of the promos for this for series. It started off with Pat Riley, obviously, because of the connection he has to both franchises, and I just turned it off. Um, but I, I, the Lakers minus 400 to win this series, I just – I, I can't discount the heat like that. I, if you watch the way that, that some of these teams have battled um, L.A., and, and if you want to just go back and talk about the Nuggets, and I know they, they beat them in six games. Um, five. Or five games. But this, this Heat team is better than that Denver team. I don't think that's a question. Um, they're going to play tough. They, 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 pro, uh, they pose a lot of matchup problems at the guard and, and wing position, um, and they have some different guys they can throw at LeBron. The problem is they, they're not going to be able to stop Anthony Davis, and so I hope – the series goes seven and then gets canceled. Uh, just quickly, I mean, we could touch on the the, the Lakers Nuggets series. It did end in five. Not that the Nuggets played badly in any of the four games that they lost. It was it was close, but this was really a coming out party for Jamal Murray and Nikola Jokic and the rest of those guys on that team. This Nuggets team is going to be a, a team over the next however many years those two are together that is a legitimate contender in the west so that was kind of exciting to see because uh, let's face it someone's got to succeed lebron and I, I mean i guess the warriors will be back next year which is terrible but 
um, it's nice to have some new blood. And especially you look at Donovan Mitchell across the mountains too. So it's, it's, it's very exciting time for young basketball in the West. Um, all right. Baseball. We'll go, we'll do, we'll do more NBA final stuff next week. Cause we'll be into it. But uh, baseball, we have postseason starting on Tuesday in the AL and then Wednesday in the NL a little different this year. The wild card series it's for everybody. So I'll just give you a quick 30 seconds on that. If you don't understand the higher seed has a home game. It's a best of three or has, has home games. They host it's a best of three series, one versus eight and then so on and so forth all the way through. Uh, we're just going to run through each, each matchup. We'll get some thoughts. Doug and I both have teams in the playoffs. So a little extended time on that. Keys is very happy that this season is over for his socks. So we'll start in the AL. We'll go what the 1-8 matchup. The Rays is the one seed. Our very own Trisha Whitaker will be reporting on that game. Congratulations, Trisha. Um, the Rays are playing the Blue Jays, though, so it's not a cakewalk for, for Tampa by, by any sense of the matter. But they did outplay, and they earned that number one seed over the Yankees this year. So let's, uh, let's start with Tampa. Y'all's thoughts on that? Yeah, um, I, like you said, I don't think it's going to be a cakewalk just because anytime you play a divisional foe, especially in the playoffs, there's a little bit extra on it. Um, but I don't think any of us are going to sit here and tell you that uh, this Toronto Blue Jays team is better than this Tampa Bay Rays team. And if they both play to their potential, then I don't see it going more than two games. I, I like Tampa in in a sweep. Um, I, I Like you just said, the Blue Jays, they're young. They have a lot of young guys, Carrero Jr., Biggio. Um, some sons of former stars in the league, but their time's not yet. The Rays, this is potentially their year. This is the best chance they've had. They've been working towards this. Now they have the opportunity. I expect two games for the Rays. Yeah, I mean, you got Snell and Glasnow in the first two games, so it's going to be tough to beat, obviously. Uh, we did, just calling back to the Trisha interview over the summer, she talked a lot about Kevin Cash and the manager of the Rays, and I think that's a difference maker for teams in the postseason. So having a guy like that who they love leading this team, I think that'll be the difference maker. Again, I will agree with you, Rays in two. Uh, down on the line, Indians, Yankees. Uh, very intriguing matchup, the four and five matchup. The Yankees are a team that are kind of sputtering into the playoffs. They've been injured all, all year, and this Cleveland team has kind of just been steady Eddie this whole season, I would say. Um, I, I don't have a big read on this game because you know the Yankees, if they want to be, can be the best team in, in baseball, arguably. And uh, the Indians certainly have the pitching to get it done. So, Doug, what do we got? You just mentioned it. I'm choosing the Indians. I don't know. I don't know if I want to say two games, but uh, I have them winning the series. They have average hitting. I would say they have probably below average hitting with the stud of Jose Ramirez leading that team. Um, but they're pitching with the best pitcher in the majors right now, and Shane Bieber, and then Zach Plesac as well. They're not going to lose two of those games. I, I like the Yankees' potential, but they've been too up and down this year. Indians in this one. If I'm a Yankees fan, I'm pissed. I'm absolutely pissed because there there are teams in this playoffs. I mean, obviously the Yankees can beat any team, but there are some teams in this playoffs that they match up really well against, and there's some teams that they don't match up well against. Some of the teams they do match up well against include like Minnesota, Houston, Chicago, um, some of these teams that can't throw the arms that Cleveland's going to be able to throw at them. Um, you're going to have to deal with Bieber, with Plesac, with Carrasco, um, with that bullpen you're going to have to deal with Jose Ramirez and you're going to have to deal with Francisco Lindor. 
Um, it's not not a fun matchup if you're a, uh, a Yankee fan and you're playing in Cleveland. I think, can the Yankees beat this team? Yes. Do they have the pitching to win uh, the World Series this year? I don't think so, and I think it's going to come back to bite them in this series. Uh, I, I really like Cleveland in three. You, uh, you mentioned playing in Cleveland. I think that's a huge factor because you don't have that short porch in right field. Uh, the pitching matchup is Bieber, then Carrasco, then Plesak. And I didn't look for the Yankees, but I'm, I'm, I can almost guarantee it's Garrett Cole, then Tanaka. So uh, the first game will be – I mean, there's going to be unbelievable pitching matchups for the first game in every series. Uh, but maybe the Yankees still win a game two with Carrasco on the mound. But I think with Bieber and Plesak, the, the Indians are winning. I'll go Indians in three as well. Uh, Houston, Minnesota, Minnesota, the three seed Houston, the six seed, the Astros hate tour was un, not effective this year. They made the postseason, but with numbers way below that of previous seasons, the twins made the playoffs as a three seed, definitely, uh, a good team, but maybe not as good as people thought they would be. Um, but again, they had like astronomical expectations. So keys, we'll start with you on this one. Um, can I get your thoughts on this three, six matchup? Uh, I, this is a tricky one for Minnesota because they're, they're kind of on the cusp, right? Um, they have a lot of really, really good young pieces. The offense obviously is the, was the story of this team. Um, are they going to be able to pitch enough to beat an experienced Houston Astros team will be, will remain to be seen, but this is a Houston team that is well on pitching that has a world rooting against them. And so I think that factors into it. I think it's going to be a close series, but again, I like Minnesota. So Granke will start game one for the Astros, and he's going against Kenta Maeda, who's revolutionized his career this year with uh, Minnesota. He's been excellent. And then they got Barrios going in game two for the Twins and uh, Michael Pineda, who is just back now a couple weeks ago. Three really good arms for for Minnesota. Um, obviously, Zach Granke has been world-class for 15 years. So that you feel good about Houston in game one, even though Kenta Maeda is on the mound. But I will go Twins in three just because the Astros are too experienced not to steal at least one game. I'm going to go with the Twins in three as well. I Well, Justin, to be honest, Granke has been great, but he was great in the first half of the season. He's kind of faltered off a little bit down the stretch, so that does worry me a little bit. They don't have Verlander, obviously. The Twins, the thing with them is they've never produced in the postseason, but might as well do it now when the whole nation is on your back. So you fading the Astros. So I, I do see the Twins winning this one in three. Well, good news is for Granke, though, the first half of the season was like 30 days ago. So yeah. he can get it back. <laughs> it wasn't that long ago. We're still pretty uh, much in the first third of the season. Right, the right. Season. Um, uh, finally, in the AL last matchup, the Twins, excuse me, not the Twins, the A's as the two seed versus the White Sox as the seven seed. Doug, we'll start with you because it's a Chicago team. The White Sox, I think, were 2-8 and eight in their last 10 games. They had to win, like, one more game to get the, the four seed. They just sputtered. They, they couldn't do anything in the last week of, of the season. Yeah, they were 2-8. and eight. They, they were not the same team they were the first 50 games. But with that being said, I still like the White Sox – um, to win this game, to win the series. I don't know if in two or three, that's still to be determined, but the, the potential of this hitting lineup for the White Sox, I like a lot. The A's matching up, kind of looking at each part of the team, I think the A's really only have this distinct advantage in the bullpen. And even then, the White Sox bullpen has been better as of late. So 
I like the White Sox. No Chapman hurts the A's. It's hurt them in the past 20 games or whatever. White Sox in three. It's something about being pinstripes and being upset about who you ended up playing in the playoffs. Like you said, like one or two or three games away from being the four seed, and it's drastically different. I think they match up a lot better with the Yankees than than they do with Oakland just because of the arms that Oakland can throw at them. Um, yeah, that's going to be – that'll be probably – that one in, um, in uh, Houston will be the two that will probably go the distance. But I like Oakland just because they're, they're pitching. Um, I'm going with Oakland in three as well just because I think the White Sox are too good to get swept. But uh, for me, it's it's the pitching. I, I love Oakland. I have loved them the whole season. I think we've all been pretty high on them this whole season. Um, but Chris Bassett, I absolutely love the starting pitcher. He's going to start game two for the A's. He's been phenomenal this season. And in the last couple of weeks of the season, his last like three or four starts, he's been lights out, like over six innings each start, less than an earned run. He's been phenomenal. So I, I look for him to carry them in game two. Yeah, Doug. So as I'm writing this down, you guys both took all the four favorites. I went chalk. Yeah, I went chalk. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think I was going to say that. Chalk. Wow. I yeah. went I went chalk too, but I went with my Chicago team. So I guess I'm not too far off. Um, all right. So we got the AL set. This, I mean, I'm very excited about this wild card series. I, I think the Braves are going to get screwed over by it, but I'm very excited for the baseball that's going to be produced from it. So we'll go to the NL now. Uh, we'll go start same order, one versus eight, Dodgers versus Brewers. This last seed, like the eighth seed in the NL, is I think we could field a team that would put up a fight uh, for that eighth seed. The Dodgers are going to blow them. I'll just start. The Dodgers are going to blow them out. It's going to be a sweep uh, just because they're the Dodgers and it's the Milwaukee Brewers. The Brewers have been on a lifeline the whole season since Lorenzo Cain opted out. So I don't see this even being close. No, I'm with you. Um, I think the Los Angeles Loomises take this one pretty easily. <laughs> Doug, anything I, different than that, or can we move on? Let's move on. All right, we got the four versus five. Very intriguing. Uh, four seed uh, Padres, who some people think is the second – or are is uh, – the Padres are, are. They are the second best team in baseball, but they're the four seed. Um, the Cardinals, who have – forever just been a playoff team um, and a team that we've seen turn it up in the playoffs. I'm very intrigued by this matchup. I don't think they've released any uh, pitching matchups, so we can't talk about that. But the Padres are going to throw, throw three guys out there that we really like, uh, Lamette Davies and the guy – or probably Clevenger if he's healthy. Um, and the Cardinals – Pat, yeah, Paddock. I mean, you you have so many options if you're the if you're the Padres. Everyone's been so good. I this Cardinals team shocked the Braves last year, and it's it's essentially the same team. Adam Wainwright at 39 years old has been spectacular in the second half for this team, and Yadier Molina is doing Yadi things. So I'm not going to tell you the Cardinals are going to lose, but the Padres are the better team. If if I'm the Padres, I'm I'm a little worried about this one. I'm going to be honest. You have a veteran Cardinals team who's used to playing in the playoffs. Um, we know they have Flaherty. I'm not – I don't didn't watch a ton of Cardinals this year. I don't know too much about their other arms, but I know they pitch. Um, their bullpen will be decent, and they'll just kind of hang around. This Padres team is young. People kind of are, are seeming to forget that they're being powered by a lot of young players um, who we haven't really seen perform in the playoffs. And so if I'm, I'm approaching this one with caution. I don't – I don't – I just don't – I don't have – enough knowledge about St. Louis's pitchers to confidently pick them, but I think it goes through. I'll be honest. I, I'm a little bit upset because I thought you guys would be high on the Padres, and then I would 
be the devil's advocate taking the Cardinals. I like the Cardinals in the series. I, I compared this Padres team. Obviously, there's some differences, but the recency effect of people buying into the Twins who had this re- really good regular season a couple of years ago, but then just don't do anything in the playoffs. I, I don't want to bet on this Padres team yet. I, I like the consistency of the Cardinals. They're very under the radar, and that's the way they want to be. Wainwright and Flaherty as two good pitchers. I, I like the Cardinals in three. Um, I'm also picking the Cardinals in three. I cannot believe we all decided not to go chalk on the same series. That's crazy. Well, I wouldn't. I I didn't. I didn't. I didn't make a distinction. Key, yeah, I, Keys just said it goes to three. Yeah, um, I will, I, I will, I, for for the sake of disagreeing, I'll just I'll pull for the Padres just because I want them to win. I just I I think it's a really dangerous matchup and kind of shocking. The experts disagree with with the the thought of this podcast. Um. Yeah. Yeah. The experts. Uh. I, like we'll I talk about say, that. I got. I'll go Cardinals in three, but I mean, the Padres can sweep this series. Like anything could happen. Like they're, they're, they're that talented. It could happen. Um, but I will be with Doug. I'll go Cardinals in three next series. Doug, take us away. Three, six Cubs fish. Could not have gotten a better matchup. If you're yeah, looking no about shit. this, <laughs> this year, uh, if you're looking historically, you could not have gotten a worse matchup after the Steve Bartman incident in 2003, but we're past that. We're moving on to this year. Um, Marlins pitching has been good this past, what, 30 games, but I have not seen them in the playoffs yet, so I'm not really buying into their hype. They're That's hitting. a hot take, my friend. That is a hot take because it's probably the best I, part of their team. Which is saying something because I, 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 just not a lot of things jump out of this page for me. Um, but with that being said, the Cubs hitting scares me in some sense because they have not been good. They have most of their players – the consistent players that were there in 2016 and there in past years too are batting under 200, which is insane for a 60 game series or 60 game season. Um, with that being said, I do like the Cubs. I like them in two games. Hendricks and Darvish, I could not have asked for two better starting pitchers to be playing well at this part of the season. Um, I, I'm not 100% confident on this, but I'm just happy that we're not playing the Reds. I really so Jose Urania, who I famous not I the entire Braves country hates uh, because of what he did to Ronald Acuna two years ago, uh, tore something yesterday. He's out for the postseason, which which sucks for him. I don't wish injury upon anybody, but he's a veteran leader in that clubhouse and on that pitching staff. But Sixto Sanchez, Pablo Lopez, and Sandy Alcantara can more than get it done for the for the Marlins if it goes to three. They have three very capable arms offensively it's it's hit or miss for the Marlins it really depends on the night they I mean you could easily see a team or you could see a game where they get one or two hits and I'd be like yeah it's a Marlins game like what's gonna happen but this team has rallied behind Don Mattingly Don Mattingly is probably gonna win manager of the year in the NL uh the fact that the Miami finished above 500 is nothing short of phenomenal it also speaks to what Jeter's vision is for this team and how it may be moving further along uh, than they thought it would, sooner than they thought it would, I guess. But you cannot discount veteran leadership and the Cubs, or I guess veteran leadership and veteran experience, and the Cubs certainly have way more of that than Miami does. Uh, I'm going to say the fish squeeze one out here, so I will go Cubs in three, but the Cubs are better and their pitching is better. I'll go Cubs in three. And Kimbrel's been better, knock on wood, in the last yeah. 30 days. 
So if he can keep that up, that is obviously a huge, a huge addition for the Cubs. As I let up a run in September. Yeah, well, knock on wood. Yeah, I think the, it's almost over. The, the fish are a little fishy. And I think, like Justin said, I, with, with the pitching and, and the way their team is, they're just a weird team. They'll, I think they'll snag one out. But I can, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that the Cubs are not going to win this series. They're not the, the better team by far. Um, it's a little concerning that you have guys like Chris Bryant not hitting very well. Um, but also, that could change in an instant. Um, the Cubs are the better team. I think they win two out of three. All right. Here we go. Reds-Braves, 2-7 matchup. Uh, I think the Reds are like the scariest team in the NL to face in a three-game series just because of their pitching. Um, For game one, like I said about – I don't remember what game I was talking about, but the first game pitching matchup between Freed and Bauer is going to be fantastic. Trevor Bauer is going to win the NL Cy Young. Um, I was a little sing-songy on that last week, but his numbers are absolutely far and ahead better than anyone else's. He will be the NL Cy Young, and he's probably going to be facing the NL MVP in Freddie Freeman. Um, but the Reds having Bauer in game one, Castillo in game two, and then Sonny Gray in game three, who's been fantastic for them this year, is frightening. Um, the Braves, it, and it's the same thing. I could go back, and it sounds like bullshit, but it's true. This playoff curse in Atlanta, this inability to finish is real. The Braves haven't won a playoff series since 2001. You saw what happened last year when they blew it. They had that 10-run inning in the game five of the Cardinals series last year. Um, it's real. I mean, it, it may not be physical, but mentally it's there. We haven't won a playoff series in 19 years, and you can be for damn sure that Brian Snicker is thinking about that. That being said, this offense is maybe one of the best in baseball. Not maybe. It is one of the best in baseball. Um, Marcelo Zuna is probably going to finish second in the MVP voting. If you look at his numbers, they are better than Tatis's and they are better than Mookie Betts. Sizz. Um, so the fact that the Braves have this lineup is very exciting. Trevor Bauer, Luis Castillo, Sonny Gray scare me. I'm not picking against the Braves. Go, I will go Braves in three. Yeah, it's a terrifying series for you guys. Um, to face those three arms in a, in a short series definitely is not fun, especially with the way that the, the Reds, the momentum they, they've had and the way Bauer's been pitching. But like, I'm, I, I, I will not be fooled by recency bias, and I'll, I will rather look like an idiot in two weeks picking the Braves than look like an idiot in two weeks picking the Reds. So I'm taking Atlanta in three. I think they're the better team, even though they don't have the better pitching, and I think they're going to figure out three games. Doug, I, I, can I jump in here for a second? Um, I forgot to mention the Braves starting pitching. So it's going to be Freed in game one. It'll probably be an Ian Anderson in game two and Kyle Wright in game three. If there is a game three, Kyle Wright is, uh, he's, I think he's a rookie, but he pitched last year, but I, I always forget how the rookie rules work for MLB. Ian Anderson is a rookie. Um, so three young guys for the Braves pitching for the, in the postseason with, with one of the better bullpens in baseball, but the Reds as a team are bad, bad hitters. I mean, I'm pretty sure their like leading uh, batting average is Votto, and he's hitting like 230. So they haven't hit well this year. They've been really carried by their pitching, and they have the home run potential. So that could be a problem for the Braves, who have a tendency of giving up the long ball. But it, it is it's it's a really intriguing matchup as a baseball fan. I mean, you step back and take off my Braves hat. It is a really intriguing matchup, just a straight-up offense versus defense. So I, I'm excited about that. 
This is the best matchup of the eight series that we just talked about. I'm glad we saved it for last. You nailed it. I've been watching the Reds all season. They're not an offensive team. Castellanos had a very good start to the season. He's cooled off a little bit. Suarez was, I think, about second in the NL in home runs the previous season. He wasn't as good this year. Votto hasn't been the same in five years. So this offense is not great, but the pitching is top two, top three in the playoffs, maybe even that top one. So I am very scared to face any of those uh, pitchers that you just mentioned. I'm going to go with the Reds in three. Um, Raider. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I don't want to take an NL Central team. I'd rather take the Braves, but this pitching is, is the best or second best in the postseason right now. And I don't, I don't know if they will continue to be this good against the Braves offense. Freeman is the rightful MVP. Acuna is still good. Albis is very good. So they do have potential. And Ozuna, by the way, one of the best, if not the best acquisition this offseason. Um, Ozuna so. is going to get a lot of money this offseason. I think you could argue in back-to-back years, the Braves have made the best offseason acquisition last year with Donaldson on a one-year contract, yeah. this year with Azuna on, Azuna on a one-year contract. So uh, Alex Anthopoulos, again, proving that he's one of the best in the business. Uh, I'm 100% with you, though, Doug. Like, if, this, if the Reds win in three, I'm not going to be uh, surprised because they are a good I'll- team. I'll add one more thing, though. Justin, you told me this time and time and again, the Braves are a very good late-game hitting team. And so if they can do that against the Reds' bullpen, who is not nearly as good as their starters, that's where they can win some games and squeak out the series. I completely agree with you. Go ahead, Keys. I I wanted to add that I think that, um, especially for the Braves, but for a lot of these other younger teams too, not playing in front of crowds. And I know that certain baseball crowds um, will have more of an effect the game on others. But um, for these younger pitchers, not having to deal with a, a raucous playoff crowd and just kind of be able to go out there and focus on pitching, I think I – don't, I don't know whether it will be, but I would assume going into it it will be beneficial for these younger guys. Yeah, I mean, the Braves on – Doug, to your point, Keys, you're absolutely correct. The, to, to your point, Doug, the, uh, the Braves under Brian Snicker have made a name for themselves – coming back in the late innings. So if you can stay with Bauer and Castillo and uh, Sonny Gray while they're in the game, I, I feel good about the Brave, the bullpen of the Braves versus the bullpen of the Reds. I think the Braves have a massive advantage in that sense, both offensively and defensively. So we don't need to spend more time on that because I know we have spent a lot on the Braves. Um, but postseason baseball is postseason baseball. We talked about this last week. It's very exciting. Wednesday, I've officially opted out of class on Wednesday. Um, I will not be attending. So I'm very excited for that slate. Let's move into college football. There was some great stuff on Saturday. I'll just run through it really quickly. Jump in whenever. Um, Keys, talk to me about this Oklahoma game. I know we were watching, and it feels like every other year, Kansas State does something to Oklahoma. I mean, I kind of want to talk about Spencer Rattler for a second because we were – uh, I know at least uh, Shell and I, one of our other roommates, were talking just kind of like how this, how good this Oklahoma offense and this team's going to be, and, and kind of what he was going to be able to do with the quarterback position. And I think he had two or three really bad turnovers. Um, but yeah, I, Oklahoma's good for one of these a year. That they like to to go in and lose an early season game and get everybody worried. Um, there's, I think they're clearly the most talented team in the Big Twelve. Um, if them or Texas, and so I still think that they're going to be up there when it's all said and done. But yeah, this. I mean, if you're a Texas, if you're an Oklahoma fan, this is, that that game was not fun for you to watch, especially giving up 17 unanswered in the fourth. 
This happens every year to Oklahoma, though. They always lose one game that they have no business losing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, par for the course. The other thing, though, is the next two games for Oklahoma are not cakewalks. You have to go to Iowa State, who hasn't been great, but they've also had this potential to be good. Ames, Iowa is one of the hardest places to play in the country every year, even without fans. It's one of the hardest places to play in the country. Go ahead. Yeah. And then, and then, uh, well, that's, that's an outstanding statement. I, I did not know that. Yeah, I had to recover um, from that one. And then the week four will be against Texas, who did not look great, but obviously Ellinger, they have potential. So you say Oklahoma does this every year. We'll see if they can bounce back. I think they do, but this was not a good loss for them. Doug, what an excellent transition. We were just about to talk about Texas, Texas Tech. What a game. And a game you knew there were going to be points. If you didn't bet the over in this game, you're an idiot. Uh, Sam Ellinger looked fantastic for the first 55 minutes of the game, and then Texas went – or, excuse me, uh, for the first, like, 50 minutes of the game. Then Texas went quiet. Texas Tech came all the way back. And then Texas came all the way back, down 15 points – Uh, With about six minutes left in the game, Texas came back, put this game into overtime. They win it in the first overtime, 63-56. to I said this to somebody, and it may have been one of you because that's all we talk about, but is Texas back like Sam Ellinger said they were two years ago? No, probably not. But they are damn good and a force to be reckoned with in the Big 12. Yeah, that's a good team. I mean, anytime you have a quarterback like Sam Ellinger returning to school – um, you can be confident in how your season's going to go. But then to, you, to to go out and to win a game down 15 in, in the last six minutes will give you confidence against anybody. To do it against Texas Tech, um, one of your biggest rivals, um, that's that's just that's a season-changing win right there. Um, like, is Texas back? I don't know. But this is a good step in the right direction, and they can't, they can't lose games like that if they, if they want to go places and to compete at a higher level. And so um, they absolutely needed that one. Sometimes top teams don't play to their potential most of the game, but then the great ones find a way to win and move on to the next week. That's what Texas did. That's what I'll take away from it. Is the U back? Yes. Maybe. They got the favorite for the Heisman right now. Yes. I love De'Eric King. I, when, all right, so he transferred last year from Houston, had to sit out a year, correct? He sat out last year, yes. Yeah. Um, what he's done for that offense, that team, has been ridiculous. Um, he's a dynamic playmaker with his feet and with his arm. Um, you can see the confidence and the swagger that, that Miami's been playing with um, just recently. And, I mean, he's absolutely unlocked that offense. Um, De'Ara King is definitely back, and he's dragging the U with him. They are back. Florida State is so bad. <laughs> um, they are just a disappointment. But I am very, very much looking forward to – I don't think it's next week, but I think it's October 10th at Clemson. So that's when we will find yeah. out if they are officially back. Yeah, two weekends away. Um, I, you guys said everything I wanted to say about the U, but I will speak to Florida State. They're 0-2, and they don't stink. They suck. They are terrible. James Blackman is the one of the biggest disappointments at quarterback in recent history. Um, Mike Norvell has no control of that team, and they look lost out there. As a Florida fan, it's exciting as hell to see them look this terrible. But, I mean, if you're an FSU fan, how the hell do you let Jimbo get out of there? Let's move on to LSU. Boy, the Pirate, man. He arrives in Starkville, and they're upsetting the recent national champion. Uh, Mike Leach brought his his air raid offense to Starkville, Mississippi. Mississippi State team who was just terrible last year. 
And you can't discount the effect that K.J. Costello, the uh, Stanford grad transfer, has had for that offense. But you put, you put this to Mike Leach and his effect on the team. You saw what he did at Washington State, and you saw what he did at Texas Tech 20 years ago. Now it's been so long. But I, I'm not ready to pick this Mississippi State team to do anything in the long run. But they are an exciting team now, and to win any game in Baton Rouge, even when LSU is bad, is a hell of an accomplishment. I'll tell you this about Mississippi State. They are so fun to watch, and obviously you have Leach on the sideline. He's always going to be fun. But the storyline coming into this game was pretty much, you know, LSU, they lost everyone. They have no returning starters. They are a new team. I don't know why they have this high of a ranking. But Mississippi State – I think I have this right, where they are the second, like, newest team in the SEC, meaning they are the second team to lose as many starters as LSU did. So I am very impressed with what they did. I don't think LSU is obviously nearly as good as they were last year, but Mississippi State, I I tweeted this out, they gained a new fan in me. Yeah, and um, I – Justin and I were talking before the game, and I looked at him, and I was like, hey, do you think the air raid can work in the SEC? Well, uh, 623 passing yards later from K.J. Costello, I think it worked pretty well. Um, Anytime you can beat the defending national champs at home, regardless of how many people are in that stadium, you beat LSU in Death Valley, and, I mean, yeah, good for the leeches. That was a huge win, and 623 passing yards, my God. Miles Brennan, the quarterback for LSU this year, who has waited years to succeed – Joe Burrow, he's a he's a fifth year, or I guess he's a redshirt senior now, um, and he he wasn't bad, but he's not. I mean, saying he's not Joe Burrow goes without saying, but he wasn't even remotely close to being Joe Burrow. Um, and like you said, they lose like twenty starters from last year. I, I think this LSU team at sixth in the nation was very overranked. Uh, quickly, just really disappointing news out of Bloomington today. Uh, Rosita Ball was going to be a leader in this secondary, and he tore his ACL. His season's over. So, uh, where do where do the Hoosiers go from here, Keys? Um, I read a lot about this today, and um, I think Osterman, Zach Osterman, another friend of the pod, tweeted this out earlier that the injury happened last week. It was non-contact. He just kind of planted, and it popped. Um, so we're wishing Marcelino a, a quick recovery, and hopefully that all goes well. Um, just as a as like a kid, but as a football like for a football team, it's a tough guy to lose. But um, Coach Allen was talking about um, rotating different guys in there, um, sliding linebackers over, rotating safeties down, and seemed pretty confident in the depth we have at that position um, to be able to cover that. But anytime you lose a player and a leader like Marcelino Ball, um, especially to a non-contact injury, it just sucks. Yeah, I'll add that. Thank God, Taiwan Mullen showed up to have an insane freshman season last year because. The Hoosiers now with Ball even out are going to be leaning on him a lot. You talk about rotating in the position just to keep fresh legs in there. They're not going to rotate out number three. So thank God that he had a, he proved himself his freshman year. He's pretty much going to be this leader in the secondary, secondary as a sophomore. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, we're a couple weeks away from the start of the season. So obviously we'll talk more IU football, but we look forward to seeing Marcelino next year and hope his recovery goes as well as it can be. Uh, we're going to introduce a new segment called the SEC Football Minute, where I just spew for about 60 seconds on what happened down south. Uh, very quickly, Florida looked fantastic in Oxford. We all watched this game together. Uh, the Gators' offense has the potential to be one of the best in the nation. Kyle Trask, along with De'Ara King, kind of have showed that they may be on an early season Heisman watch. Trask threw for six touchdowns. 
Ole Miss, Lane Kiffin and Mike Leach being in the state of Mississippi is very exciting for college football and even more exciting for the state of Mississippi. Uh, their offense, offense looked multifaceted, just stuff we're used to seeing from Lane. It was very fun to watch. As a Gator fan, it was very nerve-wracking at times. But the defense stepped up when they needed to, and uh, I was very as a as a non-biased journalist, I was very impressed. If putting up fifty-one points in Oxford is impressive, Alabama beat Missouri, no surprise there. Georgia, I'll talk about them later, but they won in uh, Fayetteville at Arkansas. They looked terrible. They won by twenty-seven. The score, the store, the score did not tell the story. Mississippi State, we talked about Auburn, Kentucky. Kentucky is good. They did not. Uh, they did not play well in the second half against Auburn. Auburn, a more veteran team than Kentucky. Don't look for this Kentucky team to just go away now. Auburn, I still think fraud alert. Vanderbilt stayed with Texas A and M. Vandy is really, really bad. So this does not bode well for Jimbo's team. Yeah, that final score being seventeen to twelve is shocking. Tennessee, Jeremy Pruitt, great. Uh, way win in Columbia against Will Muschamp. Great for Tennessee. Uh, they've got a tough schedule this year, obviously, just like everybody in a shortened season. But a winning an away game against a, a defense like that in South Carolina is very, very good. And, uh, you know, Tennessee's been in a bit of a funk for the last forever. So this is good for them uh, to get off the start this season 1-0. and Any thoughts on that? I think I kept it under two minutes, so I'll try and get it down next week. I wanted to add that I cannot believe you did not uh, mention Kyle Pitts and his, I think, four touchdowns. Oh, he had four touchdowns, yeah. I was trying to go quick. <laughs> um, and then something else football-related, um, but not in the SEC. We go to the, moving over to the ACC quickly. Um, uh, Louisville's Malik Cunningham gets hurt. Um, tough injury for Louisville. That's probably their season. Um, you hate to see a guy that talented go down, so, so that was unfortunate. But Pittsburgh ended up pulling out the win there. Um, Kenny Pickett and this Pitt Panthers team are now 2-0. and um, so we'll see what they can do moving forward. They have a matchup with NC State next week, um, but I think three weeks from now they play Miami. So we'll be circling that one on the calendar. We will circle that one, and I'm going to mute my mic. Tell me about what happened in the UFC this weekend. All right, boys and girls, what a fight card we got this weekend. UFC 253. Dougie, we're going to start at the top. Israel Adesanya, the middleweight champ, the king, undisputed, took out Paulo Costa, and it wasn't even really close. Um, I, if you listened to our podcast last week, um, or if you caught me anytime this week talking about these fights, I was pretty confident in Adesanya. Um, Paulo Costa is a marauding fighter. He moves forward, bites out of his mouthpiece, throws big shots. Um, but there's kind of a misconception that he was a real um, knockout artist. Um, I think that anybody who really dove into this fight deeply saw that um, the skills discrepancy was pretty big. Um, and that's kind of what we saw in the fight. Izzy kind of stood on the outside, picked him apart, started with leg kicks, and as soon as uh, – he found his openings. Those shots started coming in. Um, wobbled him, I think, with a head kick early in the first, and then it was kind of all downhill from there from Paulo. I think Paulo Costa only threw 12 strikes in the entire fight. Um, it was just an absolute master class from Adesanya, and, and it wasn't even particularly close. It went the way Adesanya wanted, like you just said. Costa never really was comfortable. Adesanya always kept him on his heels. But what really impressed me was Adesanya, throughout the fight, always kept him going backwards. Costa was very interesting. It was surprising me how much he kind of gave into Adesanya's con to his uh, motives, I guess, and his tricks, because there were a lot of taunting by Costa, even though he was clearly losing the fight. I like the confidence, but when you're losing that bad and you're facing the champ, 
you gotta get some more strikes in. And he was not very impressive in that fight. No, it, and it, it was weird because um, the whole lead up to the fight, Paulo Costa talked about how he was going to come forward and how he was going to push the pace and how he was going to knock Israel out. And then the fight starts and he stood in the middle. Um, there was a point in the middle of the first round where uh, Adesanya could be verbally heard in the octagon calling him Yoel Romero um, because of his unwillingness to engage. But, um, yeah, instead of uh, pushing shots or trying to get him up against the fence or engage in a clincher or, or throw strikes, he, he just sat there and, and taunted and just ate shots for it. And the thing, too, is I think maybe what his mindset was, all right, this is a five-round fight. I'm going against the cardio master. Let's wait a little bit. Let's not just throw all my energy in the first round. Well, if you don't do a little bit of energy in the first round, you're going to go down big already, and that's what happened. Yeah, exactly. Like I, I think a gas tank probably played a big part into it because um, in Paulo's previous fights, you can see he's gassed out by the third round. Um, so that's something he might have been cautious of and, and not wanted to empty that too quickly. But like you said, he got so far behind the eight ball that there's just nothing he can do. We move on to the co-main event. Um, that was Dominic Reyes and Jan Blahovich. This podcast had a great week calling fights, I will say. Um, Doug, we, oh, yeah. were all this one. we were all over the Blahovich upset by knockout. Um, but this, this fight changed early. Blahovich hit, I think it was a left body kick. Um, yep. I believe it was a left body kick. And it just absolutely welted the right side of Reyes. Um, Reyes, after the fight, was frustrated with himself, saying he didn't throw enough. Um, but Blahovich outstruck him. I think it doubled his strikes. And it was a really, really impressive form- performance from Jan Blahovich. Like we said before, we, we, I think we called knockout on the podcast last week. But um, just to kind of see him walk through Reyes the way he did, I don't think anybody really expected it to look that easy. Yeah, I mean, the pretty much main idea for this fight is there's no – John Bone Jones. So who's it going to be? There's, there's not any like alpha guy, but Blahovich really showed out and, and was very impressive. The leg kick to the body, which you see a lot of leg kicks to the shins nowadays, but to the body, that was really fun to see as an MMA fan. Um, and just the way he went about his business, it was an early knockout, really dominated from start to finish. So that it wasn't a surprise. He was the underdog. Like we said, though, we, we liked him from the start. Yeah, and, and it's, it's, it's special when you watch a guy kind of work to the body and, and how that opens up the head and things like that. It's, it's kind of surprising to see more guys not do that, but then kind of understanding how hard it is to hit that area yeah. and, and stuff like that. Um, but if we want to move down the card a little bit, we go to Brandon Roy Val versus Kai Carafrance, and that fight was awesome. I, I'm telling you guys right now, I'm not missing another Brandon Roy Val fight. In the first 30 seconds of this fight, Roy Val got cracked, and as he was wobbled going down, he hit a spinning back elbow. It was easily the mo- one of the most insane first, like, 30, 45 seconds of a fight I've ever seen. Um, fight goes into the second round, and Roy Vaughn gets the choke. Super, super, super impressive. Um, I, I think that was his second fight in the UFC, and he's going to be fighting a top five guy next. Um, don't miss another Brandon Roy Vaughn fight, because Kai Kyle is the real deal, and he just handled him. Yeah, I don't really have much to add to, add to this. I, you said the spin back fist, those are entertaining. I mean, I'll tell you, the way he just spins his body after getting hit, he's not afraid. It's, it's very fun to watch. He's an entertainer, and we'll see more of him soon. Yeah, and then just to finish up the rest of the card kind of quickly, um, Caitlin Vieira, um, she looked really good. She won a um, majority decision over Sajara Eubanks. And then Mean Hakim Dawadu um, beat Zabaria Tohukov, and Tohukov missed weight. Um, that fight was close. I thought uh, Dawadu won a decision. It was a split. He still won. Um, but yeah, another exciting fight just to start off the card. What did you think of that one, Doug? 
I was impressed with Duwadu or Dewoody or whatever you want to call him. He was a very fun fighter to watch. The thing is, though, it, was, it wasn't just him. It was both fighters. I thought it was a very even fight. You said you thought Duwadu won in three. I thought, you know, Duwadu could have easily lost. So I, I just was impressed with the techniques used in that fight, the cardio all the way through, through three rounds. Um, we'll see more of both of them soon. But just to kind of re- recap on the card, from top to bottom, very, very impressive. You know, when you have a pay-per-view event, you want big fights, you want action, you want knockouts, and we got all of them. Yeah, and I think, um, and just kind of wrap up our UFC talk here, My the most entertaining part about uh, Israel Adesanya is that he understands perfectly what his job is. And so he knows that there, there are two things he must do. One, he's got to win. Um, so, you, you know, he's going out there and he's knocking people out and he's getting wins. And two, you have to make sure, and Chael Sonnen says this all the time, you have to make sure you can come to work tomorrow. And so you have to set up your next fight. And not a lot of guys do a very good job of this, but Israel Adesanya does a fantastic job of this. Before he even left the arena the other night, he called out Jared Cannonier, who's fighting Robert Whitaker in a couple of weeks. Um, and so he said, if Cannonier wins that fight, he's next. Dana White loved it. Um, that's how you book fights. That's how you, that's how you get to the position Israel Adesanya is at by, first of all, being as good as he is and winning and then understanding that there are multiple aspects to this sport and, and he just he does his job very, very well, and he's fun to watch. Um, this was a big weekend for me because I actually did watch the fights, so we are moving upwards in my UFC fandom. After starting at zero, we are now at one. We're eventually going to get to 10 where I can actually speak educatedly about this. We'll get let's, you there, buddy. Don't worry. Let's now move on to segments. Uh, Doug, I want to start with you. Good week, bad week. Good week for this coming week, TV ratings. I mean, we, we've had it the past month or so ever since Corona has calmed down a little bit. But this week specifically, we have playoffs in the NBA and the MLB. We have Raven Chiefs. And then I know we're not a political podcast, but we do have the debate on Tuesday. And whatever side you land on, that's reading. So the TV networks are going to have a great week. Keys, what about you? Uh, like you said earlier, it's a good week to be the 2021 Boston Red Sox. I was reading about your storylines for next year, getting excited. Um, I finally don't have to watch this team play baseball, which is nice. Um, I can kind of focus on getting better and uh, looking towards the future. So it's been a great week to be a 2020 or 2021 Red Sox fan. It's been a bad week to be a Celtics fan. Um, that sucked. And it was an awful week to be Paulo Costa um, because of all the shit he talked before the fight. Now he's just eating it on Twitter. Um, if you don't follow Israel Adesanya on Twitter, uh, right now he's a must follow. He's just absolutely letting Paulo have it. Um, so if you're looking for some entertainment, go check out Izzy's Twitter page. Uh, my good week, bad week is good week, Florida Gators. Not even as a fan. I mean, just as a, as a, as a lover of college football, the way they played on Saturday was very, very telling about how this season is going to go for them. Um, I think they are now the favorites in the East. This will tie into why I love sports this week as well, but um, they looked far and away to be, have the best day of anyone in the SEC this weekend. So good week, Florida. Uh, Gators bad week uh, last weekend this coming week forever my sports mental health like I said earlier if the Braves lose this playoff series the Reds um, were in serious trouble like we we're gonna have to we're gonna have to call someone I'm gonna have to sit down we're gonna have to have a, a talk I'm gonna be laying on the couch like we're gonna be in, in a real bad spot if the Braves lose but positive vibes only no games been played yet as far as I know, the Braves are going to sweep the Reds. I'll transition right into why I love sports this week. Uh, I said this last week, I think, on this podcast. If I didn't say it, I've said it to you all. UGA football is fraud. 
JT Daniels was just a, uh, activated, so he is now eligible to play quarterback for the Bulldogs coming up, which is exciting for them. But Arkansas is the worst program. Uh, I said they're the worst program in the SEC, and that includes Vanderbilt, I think. Uh, I think Vanderbilt's going to be a better team than Arkansas is this year, and UGA was down at halftime and looked terrible. I don't know what Kirby Smart said to them at halftime, but they, they finally shot it up in the second half, but their upcoming schedule, I mean, just, you know, this is finally, I'm so excited to get back to our favorite segment. Justin reads a schedule. They play Auburn in Athens next weekend, then Tennessee, then in Tuscaloosa, then in Lexington against Kentucky, and then in Jacksonville against Florida. And they still have Mississippi state on the schedule later this year. So that is five games in a row, a bye week before the Florida game. So five games in six weeks. There's no way they win all those games. They don't have the talent. They don't have the ability. They don't have the attitude to do it. So great week for UGA being – oh, wait, no. This is uh, why I love sports. I love sports this week because UGA is going to lose a bunch of football games in the next couple weeks. Uh, Keys, let's go right to you. I mean, have you guys looked at the slate? I mean, good God. I mean, we have – tonight is is Chiefs and uh, Ravens. And then tomorrow night the baseball playoffs start. Wednesday the NBA finals starts. Um, we got the – I'm pretty sure we have hockey tonight, right? Our resident hockey guy Cole yep. Spears telling me we have hockey tonight. Um, college football and NFL football this weekend. Like, I, as a sports fan, I don't think there's – like, I can't even wrap my head around how many good things are happening this week. I'm, uh, if you can't tell, I'm excited. Uh, Doug, why do you love sports this week? I'll go some other direction. It's, it was the 20-year anniversary, I think on last Wednesday, of the all-time best sports movie, in my opinion, Remember the, Tit- Remember the Titans, when it came out. So for Coach Boone and Coach Yost, of course, Denzel Washington, one of his best, in my opinion, um, it was the 20-year anniversary. Classic movie. If you haven't seen it in a while, go watch it again. Um, Coach Yost in that movie is is the best, and that is, I agree with you, the best sports movie of all time. Caddyshack, a close second. But uh, for that, that's it for today. Be sure to tune in next time in studio for another Sideline Report. I was walking down the street when out the corner of my eye I saw a pretty little thing approaching me. She said, I never seen a man who looks so well.